Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 217 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Rachel Rogers about how to succeed in solo or small firm practice by scaling up to handle more clients, or as she puts it, become a million-dollar badass. (laughs) There you go. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, Ruby Receptionists, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So we are very excited to announce the launch of our 10th annual Best Law Firm Websites Contest. The post is live and pinned on the top of the front page of Lawyerist, where you can find all of the winners of the 10 best websites in the country for the past year. Uh, Uh, For the past 10 years, because this is the 10th anniversary of the 10 Best Law Firm Websites Contest. Totally. (laughs) Though all of the winners pinned in this year's post are just from this year. You can also find the old contest. No question. It's really impressive the cool designs we're seeing from law firm websites around the country. This year, I feel like is less of a big shift from past years. There aren't any kind of new lessons or tools people are using, but it's for sure a sign of some really positive design evolution among law firm websites. Last year's sites were great, and this year's sites are as good or better, and some really cool different ideas. And thought it would be useful for all of you to take some time and look through it to get ideas about how your firm site could be better, or if you're in the process of redesigning your site, to have some examples, a portfolio you might share with your designer to give that person some ideas of the directions you might want to go. Yeah, here's the way I would think about this. One, it's kind of fun to just see the creative and interesting website sites that are out there, much more accessibility this year. We're seeing better responsive design and just kind of things are maturing in general. So it's kind of fun to see all that. But the way to use this is when you're getting ready to redesign your website or get a website, one of the first things a good designer will ask you is what are some websites that you think are good and that you would want your website to look like? And we've had people just essentially send a link to their designer and a copy of our guide to getting a good law firm website and just say, here, give me one of these. And that's a really effective way to help give your designer some directions so that they aren't just operating from the ether. Yes. Even better would be if you pick one or two of the winners to actually give them specific directions since the 10 winners this year are not necessarily all like each other. But either way, the idea is this can be a really useful case study for you to think about ways that your online marketing and brand presence could be improved. And maybe you can be a winner next year. We'll talk a bit more about getting a great law firm website over the next couple of podcasts. For now, we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Diana Steepleton from Ruby Receptionists and then my conversation with Rachel. Hi, this is Diana Steepleton. I'm the VP of Partner Engagement here at Ruby Receptionists. Welcome back, Diana. It's good to have you back. Thank you. You just published, well, you being Ruby, just published an ebook about the return on investment, the ROI of personal connections. Say more about that. Uh, what is the ROI of personal connections and what does that have to do with answering the phone? The reason we published this book was really because we are regularly and consistently preaching this idea of personal connections make a big difference in the world. And that's really one of our driving missions. Mm-hmm. And 
people often say to us, that's great, but really is there ROI on that? It's obviously a nice thing to provide, but mm -hmm. does it make a difference for your business or your practice? And we produce this book to prove that yes, it really does. I just smacked my forehead in dismay that anyone would say that, but I'm sure you're <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, I've met lawyers who believe that only they can answer the phone and they must answer it every time before the second ring. And I've met lawyers who let every call go to voicemail. Like where on the spectrum is the right place? And does it matter if you're the one who actually picks up? Well, there's also probably a happy medium in there somewhere. It isn't necessarily feasible for an attorney to answer the every call. Mm -hmm. The ones they can't answer probably shouldn't go to voicemail. You know, there's a lot of surprising stats on the importance of being responsive to potential clients. I'll rattle some off for you. Yeah. <laughs> More than 37% of people say they conduct an online search when looking for an attorney, and 65% say that they want to reach a business by phone. Mm. So with the frustration of scrolling around on a tiny screen, you know, when you're looking at somebody's website and trying to figure out if they're a good practice for you, it's so easy to hit the little click to call button on your smartphone. And people do that more and more. And when they do that, they expect a live person to answer the phone and to at least provide some help, Right. 74% yeah. of people said that they choose another business if they have a bad experience on the phone. And that could even be that the bad experience is simply that nobody answered it. <laughs> I mean, that's a good point. And sometimes we feel like in this day and age, we're more text oriented. But if somebody wants to call, um, maybe you better pick up the phone. Are there other accommodations we should be making besides just phones? Yeah, we have been being asked more and more to be able to answer people's chats on their website. So we actually just purchased a chat company, which is for a different day we can discuss. But chat's really another area where people want to engage. They go to your website, they have a question, they just want to be able to ask it right then, and they want a real person to answer it. They don't want a bot answer. Mm -hmm. You know, businesses are seeing a whopping 40% higher conversion rate when they are able to engage with someone via chat rather than the person just looking at their website. I guess it's giving people options, huh? Yes, exactly. Okay, so we started by talking about ROI. Let's get back to it. What are sort of the strategic implications of your decision to answer the phone or not? And how do you even think about ROI? Well, you know, acquiring a new client can be expensive. People spend a lot of time, money, and energy to get their phone to ring or to get someone to visit their website. And it's expensive. Some say it's five times more, you know, greater cost to acquire a new customer or a new client than it is to keep one that you already have. Mm -hmm. And we know that word of mouth marketing is the cheapest and most successful type, right? I think the Clio Trends report this year said that 62% of those looking for a new attorney rely on a referral from family or friends. And those good experiences that you provide for the people who you're working with, you know, they tell those stories and those stories become your referrals and, you know, they're priceless. For sure. Listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the ROI of personal connections, you can find the ebook at callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. That's callruby.com slash lawyeristpod. And we'll have the link in the show notes. Thanks so much, Diana. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rachel Rogers, the CEO of Hello7, which is a business coaching firm. And I focus on coaching women entrepreneurs who want to scale their businesses from 100K to a million. And this is my second business. My first business was a law firm that I ran for seven years. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for being with us on the podcast today. And it's kind of fun to talk to you seven years after you hit our radar. Yeah. I know. Isn't it crazy? <laughs> it was like, this is like fast forward so many years later. And I just remember all of the 
uncertainty that I had. And at one point I was a member of the lawyerist like membership community. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to you at one time I emailed you about like, at what point do we start making more money? You know, (laughs) at what point am I going to stop feeling stressed about bills? You know, (laughs) I had a stock answer that I still pretty much give, you know, and it makes me think. So you launched your law practice and immediately just decided, you know, fuck tradition. You're going to do it things your own way. And I really wish we had then what we've built now in the lawyerist lab, because a lot of your struggles felt like you were kind of the only person out there doing what you were doing, which isn't quite true. But it always seemed to me like you were feeling like you were off on your own. And and now, you know, there's a whole community of people doing innovative things. But maybe we should just back up and tell us about that law firm that you started and your experience of starting it. Yes. So I did feel kind of like the only. Mm-hmm. And I know that wasn't entirely true. And the reason I know it is because I've called all the other people who were doing what I was doing. <laughs> right. That was my strategy. So when I decided I wanted to start a law firm, I was clerking at, uh, for a judge. Right. So like right after law school, I had a year of clerkship. And during that clerkship, I applied to a bunch of government jobs. I applied to some small and medium sized law firms and I got several job offers, which was great. But I just felt like I didn't really want any of them, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I just had that entrepreneurial spirit and just felt like I don't want to go the super, I guess, traditional route. And I wanted freedom and flexibility, which I think a lot of people want nowadays. A lot of lawyers want, which is pretty much used to be unheard of if you were an attorney. And so, <laughs> yeah, the idea was you just suck it up and put your head down and work and who yeah. cares what you want. Exactly. You have to work 80 hours a week. And, you know, lucky you, you get to be a part of this profession, you know, Mm -hmm. is really was the attitude. And so I decided after kind of getting different offers and seeing what was out there, I started really looking into starting my own practice. And really a source of a lot of that information was the lawyerist, solo practice university. There was a few places that I was like kind of talking to people on Twitter and like, you know, whatever resources were out there. And they were fairly new at the time Mm -hmm. and then decided, you know, I wanted to start my own practice and I wanted to start a virtual law office because I had seen some of the stuff that Stephanie Kimbo put out. She actually had back then a software specifically for having a virtual law practice. And so I wanted to do that. And so basically, you know, I talked to that company and one of the representatives there who I'm still connected with all these years later, (laughs) I remember calling her and being like, is this real? And can I like really make money doing this? (laughs) And so she was like, these are all the other people who are doing this. And so literally I would Google and research and found every single person that I could find every other lawyer who had a virtual law practice. And I called every single one of them or emailed and said, Hey, how is it going? Like, will you tell me for real? What is it like? Is it working? Can you really make money this way? Do you find it to be successful? And almost all of them responded. I think there was like only literally one person that I didn't talk to. Pretty much everyone responded. And it was amazing how forthcoming they were and how much they were willing to share and be helpful. So that's a tip. Do your market research because Mm -hmm. people will usually help you if you ask nicely. And so I had conversations with all of them and all of them basically said, no, it's not working, you know, (laughs) basically. And a few of them, quite a few of them actually closed shortly after. I mean, my impression of many virtual practices has been that people were doing it as a side gig in order to just add some money to the household finances, but that very, very few people were really making it a business. And, And obviously it's gotten better over time. People have been able to do it, but that didn't stop you, I guess. (laughs) No. And you know what it was? It was, I started thinking about, okay, so I, you know, I also followed Tim Ferriss. I read the four hour work week. Mm -hmm. And from there also found 
you know, other like sort of online marketing, online business type people. And what I found when I spoke to all of these attorneys is that they were trying to market a virtual law practice in a very traditional practice way, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way that most traditional brick and mortar law firms market themselves. And what I found is that that wasn't very successful for them. And so, but there was these online marketing people who were selling services or selling products online and they had figured out how to sell things online. And so I was like, oh, I need to match this virtual law practice situation with the marketing that these online marketing people are doing and just match it up. And so that's what I did. You know, so I figured out like, oh, they're blogging. I need to blog, mm -hmm. you know. They're doing webinars or they're, you know, on Twitter all the time. So I need to do that. And so I found basically I just kind of merged the two. And I think that's really where innovation comes from is, you know, immersing yourself in other cultures, other experiences, other industries. And you can get ideas that are working in other industries that you can apply to your own and come up with a really creative solution. Well, and that's something that we keep coming up with, right? Like just sticking technology on things doesn't make anything innovative. And... <laughs> <laughs> that was the, it sounds exactly like what you ran into that. Yeah, you can use this platform to practice law virtually and leave everything else the same, but it doesn't really work all that well because there's more that's required. And you're right. You have to rethink the way you practice law and not just plug some software in and don't have an office. Exactly. Exactly. Like that's not going to do it. It's not like build it and they will come. We all wish, mm -hmm. but that is not how it works. <laughs> Create it and they will come maybe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, that, so that basically I started the virtual law practice literally the day after I ended my clerkship. Hmm. Um, I started my practice. I told a bunch of friends, I emailed everyone that I knew, got three clients from that. And that was all she wrote, went from there hmm. and just figured it out as I went. And the first year it was actually a blessing and a curse. I got a ton of press because if you do anything even remotely different in the legal industry, because it is so traditional and used to be so like not innovative that if you did anything that was a little bit different, you could get some media coverage. And so I got a ton of media coverage, which was great. And that was really helpful to build my practice. And so it wound up being a very successful practice. Like by year seven, when I decided to transition out, we were at about 700,000 a year in revenue. So doing pretty good. And I had two associates and an assistant, basically. Well, and I remember a lot of pearl clutching and, um, <laughs> you know, worrying about, you know, whether what you were offering was legal advice and where your office had to be located and stuff. And all of that stuff feels cute now. Like, I can't believe, yes. I can't believe how much people were worried about those things that I just, looking back, I feel like, what stupid argument we were having. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, I totally agree. And I'm really actually grateful for some of those experiences. I got challenged a lot mm -hmm. and, you know, as you know, had people say really nasty things about me and, you know, still, if you Google my name to this day, you're going to see some of that stuff, which is fine. You know, it hasn't stopped me clearly, but you know, that, that challenge was actually great because it was kind of like my worst nightmare, mm -hmm. right. To have, a group of people who, you know, have a bit of a reputation and seem like legit, right? Say that I'm not legit, right? And basically, you know, I had clients call me and say like, well, I want to work with you, but I, when I Googled you, I saw XYZ, can you explain that? Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm grateful for that experience because it put me in a place where essentially I don't give a fuck, you know? It put me in that place where I'm like, oh, people will say whatever they want. And when you challenge the status quo and when you are innovative, 
people don't like it. People right. like the tradition. And, and, you know, sometimes they feel like, you know, this is threatening to their career, even though that's not what you're trying to do. Or maybe they feel like, you know, no, it shouldn't be done that way. It should only be done this way, you know? And I feel like also the law profession does have a lot of gatekeepers. And it also doesn't help that I'm a black woman with a huge Afro and like, <laughs> you know, everything about me doesn't say lawyer. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm an easy target, you know? And I, I think that was one of the best things that ever happened to me because it really liberated me. It made me feel like I don't have to hide anymore. I can say whatever I want, wherever I want, because if people are going to talk shit about me anyway, I might as well just be who I want to be, you know? <laughs> so, if you had to go back and do it all over again, though, would you change anything about how you went about it? Whether, I mean, maybe you didn't even realize at the time that you were about to challenge the status quo. I think some people wound up filing ethics complaints against you that you totally got passed. But I'm wondering, like, would you do anything different about it if you had to go back and do it over again? You know, the only thing I think I would do differently is stand up for myself sooner. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I definitely spent a couple of days on the couch crying. And I'm, by the way, I was like eight months pregnant when all this was going <laughs> down. Yeah. So I remember laying on the couch, like crying about it. And I remember my husband coming in and being like, are you serious? Like, get your ass off that couch and like, stop crying over what a couple of people online are saying about you. Like, yeah. who are they? You know, they can't stop you. And he was totally right. And when I really, I thought about, I was pregnant with my daughter. And when I thought about her and like, if this were to happen to her, what would I tell her to do? And I would tell her to stand up for herself. So like after it went on for a little while. Then I stood up for myself and really what that looked like was I wrote a response, you know, mm -hmm. to what they were saying. And that's when I started to, you know, fight back basically. And then I felt empowered, you know, so I think I would have done that sooner, but that's the, literally the only thing that I would change, <laughs> yeah. changing my approach and realizing also that like at this point, right? Like that's not the only time people have said mean things about me, like story of my <laughs> life, right? Like who cares? Um, right. And you can't give other people that power. And I think that's really, really important. I think that can be hard for lawyers because there's such a heaviness to it. Like there's such tradition to this profession. And it's something that like, there's such pride in being an attorney that it can feel really like, Oh, I need to play ball. And I'm lucky to be an attorney. And all my friends are impressed that I'm a lawyer. So I need to do it the way that everyone says that I should. And sometimes, honestly, the profession doesn't fit for the life that we're living right now. It doesn't really fit for a lot of people of color. It really doesn't fit for a lot of women, parents, you know, and so we have to make those changes and we can't be afraid that, yes, people are going to be riled up. People are not going to like it. Oh, well, you know, well, and your the, the way you approach this, whether whether you realized or not, when you started that you were going to be attacking the status quo, one of the refreshing things about it is that so many lawyers don't do anything for fear that they will be challenged. Yes. And sometimes people just need to be like, hey, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to give it my shot. And maybe, maybe yes. I get to change the expectations around what it means to be a lawyer, which is true today. I, you know, a lot of the things that you did when you started your law firm are now like, oh, yeah, of course you can do that. So yeah, exactly. And also, <laughs> too, like you're an attorney. Your your job is to be challenged, you know, like mm -hmm. you know how to argue. Right. Like, you know how to defend yourself. So don't be afraid. And the other thing that I will say, too that I've told so many young lawyers that have contacted me over the years is that like, don't listen necessarily to what every attorney is saying. Cause like people will say, Oh, this is unethical that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't do that. And when I read the like New Jersey, like, you know, what the statute said about having a practice where you don't have a traditional brick and mortar office, 
like there was all these rules like that you had to have email access and you had to be registered with the Supreme Court of New Jersey and you had to whatever. Right. And so it's like, just check off those boxes. And then, of course, you can have a virtual law office. And it was the same in New York. And then New York changed because there was that that lawsuit. So they changed the rules there. But it was always like if you actually read the statute and if you actually contacted the ethics committee, like it was totally fine. But all these lawyers are saying, no, you can't. So like, don't listen necessarily to what everybody's saying, like, look it up for yourself. And here's what I had, (laughs) which I think is hilarious, Sam, but Mm -hmm. I feel like you need to have it. I had like my insurance file, which was everything that I was doing that was different, that wasn't traditional. I would like find the case study and like the case law on it. And I would like make sure that I had all the statues pulled and I would put it in this folder. So that way, if it came up and I got challenged on it, I could just whip it out and be like, well, let me tell you something, (laughs) you know? I mean, that seems really important, right? Absolutely. Find out for yourself, check your assumptions. Exactly. Speaking of listening to other lawyers and whether or not you ought to though, I think you'll appreciate this. I was reflecting on this. Billy Tarasio asked me to write the, the foreword to the book that she was working on with a bunch of other lawyers. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about what I want to say, one of the things I decided I wanted to say is like, look at our profession. Uh, we are depressed. We are suicidal. Yes. We are abusing drugs and alcohol. We are getting divorced in numbers that dwarf the general population. Yes. And um, the, the best data we have says that most lawyers are working their asses off to earn a fairly modest living. And so listen to other lawyers. Why? What can they teach you? <laughs> they will teach you that they will teach you how to be depressed how to how to be the kind of lawyer who can't keep their marriage together or their shit together and can't make a great living and so why listen to other lawyers exactly exactly right and you really do have to get yourself i mean they say this as business owners too right and we're both you do have to get yourself out of your bubble right Mm -hmm. talk to other people like you know interact in the real world with other humans i feel like that's really important to Because you can feel like, oh, everything is riding on whether I win this case or not. And then when you go in the real world, you're like, oh, okay. Like there's life after this case or there's life after this billable hour, you know? So I think we can just put a little bit too much stock into our law degrees and our bar admittances. I mean, absolutely. (laughs) Obey the ethics rules to the letter um, or advocate for change uh, as you did. But yeah, question authority at every step of the way. (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. I want to talk about what it means to build a business focused on serving women and particularly women of color. And I want to talk about your transition to business coaching out of law practice. So we'll be back in a minute. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use and time consuming. It doesn't have to be. With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. Just drag and drop a complaint or brief, and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. Case Text is fast, well-designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com lawyerist to get Case Text for $55 a month. Case Text is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com lawyerist to get started. If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. 
Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com slash lawyerist. That's gusto.com slash lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more reviews on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. Okay, we're back. So Rachel, you've mentioned a couple of times that (laughs) different things about law practice, different things about business don't work as well for women and particularly people of color. I've had some conversations with people that are building businesses marketed towards women and it doesn't go much further than that pink washing. And I, I'm confident that's not what you mean. And so I'm curious about your thoughts about that. What is different about building your business around women? And, and I guess maybe we better tee that up by talking about what you're doing now and how that transition happened. Yeah. So I think what happened is I went, literally what happened is I went on a retreat to Italy and had this realization that maybe practicing law wasn't making me as happy as I thought it was Mm -hmm. and not necessarily what I wanted to keep doing because all of the things that I loved about practicing law was like advising my clients. And, you know, you see the back end. I, so I was doing intellectual property law and small business law for entrepreneurs. Right. And most of my clients were women entrepreneurs then. Um, and it wasn't so much that I marketed to them. It was just kind of like, that's who showed up. (laughs) And so that's who I served, you know? I mean, I can see how that would have resonated your, your marketing materials, your website and stuff. I think you put that out and people would have identified with that. Absolutely. Right. Because I'm, you know, basically when you are one of the few, and I think that's still true in entrepreneurship where there are obviously a ton of women starting businesses, but I think in a lot of these spaces where you find yourself with other entrepreneurs, you can be the only or one of a few as a woman and definitely as a person of color as well. So I think finding comfort in working with another woman, working with a woman of color, there is something to that. And people would get really excited about finding me. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. they'd be like, I'm so excited. I went through your website. Like they were sold before I even got on the phone with them, which was great. But anyway, I went on this retreat to Italy and I think I just had this realization that like all the parts of practicing law or like running my business that I really loved was everything like not actually practicing law. So like not actually <laughs> writing briefs, not actually, you know, registering trademarks. I mean, I loved giving the advice. So advising clients for sure. Supervising associates was definitely challenging, although not I had exactly one of the writing best... contracts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like writing contracts wasn't the most fun I've ever had. And also too, like I knew that my strengths were, I really needed to be in front of people. Like that's where I was my best speaking and teaching and doing those kinds of things. And whenever it was like, let me kind of, you know, got my laptop out at 10 o'clock at night because my kids are asleep now and I can finally, and the phone stopped ringing. So I can finally, I feel like all lawyers actually really do their work at night. You know, <laughs> In bed, probably. Yes. Yeah. 
Exactly. <laughs> because finally people are leaving us alone and we can focus and write that brief or whatever we need to draft. Yeah. So anyway, so I had that realization. And then of course it was like at least a year and a half later before I was really willing to admit it to myself that I didn't really love like practicing law anymore. Right. So it took a while to admit that. I think it's a really hard thing because we work so hard to get these law degrees and to get licensed. We, we spent so much money to become lawyers. All of our friends are so impressed that it can be really hard to say, you know what, I'm kind of over it, you know, yeah. and we think we have to do it forever. Yeah, so much of your identity is tied up in being a lawyer and, and yes. maybe even in being a particular kind of lawyer. You know, the first transition yes. I made was from being a consumer rights litigator to representing small businesses. And that was really hard for me to get my head around not being a litigator. Yeah. Same for switching out from being a lawyer. Yep, totally. Yep. And I can totally see that. Yeah. So then I started to sort of narrow, narrow, narrow more and more and more so that I was like, okay, I just do trademarks and like licensing agreements, you mm -hmm. know? And like, I would keep narrowing it until I was like, all right, I don't, I really don't, there's nothing left that I still want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started to make that transition. And really what I did was I feel like the transition sort of follows the money. So I was like, if I'm going to make this transition, I've been the sole breadwinner for my family for, I don't know, nine years at this point. So I didn't have the option of, Oh, I'm just going to quit. Like, and Oh, by the way, I have a million children. So, <laughs> so, so I didn't have the option to just be like, I'm going to stop doing this and go like soul search and find myself. Like there was none of that. So if I was going to do this, I had to find a way for it to make me money. And so I found that basically what I was doing was advising a lot of these business owners on things outside of just legal advice. And I was giving all of that advice for free and just charging for the contract. Right. And so I was like, all right, let me switch it and see if I can charge for the advice. You know, <laughs> do you still do the contracts then or no? No, I don't. I don't practice yeah. law anymore, but I do still have like I still give them templates and things like that. But I don't actually, you know, basically dole out legal advice anymore. Um, even though I am still licensed, I just don't right. prefer to. Anywho, so I, you know, the first thing that I did was just say like, okay, I'm doing, you know, I'll do basically, I had legal consults and coaching consults, like mm -hmm. basically business strategy advice and started selling those. That was the first thing. And people would buy an hour of my time to get my advice on things. And also and I, I had built this up translated well from your practice, right? Because your existing former clients were your potentially first new clients. Exactly right. So it was actually not that hard. And a lot of them, I think a lot of times when we know we need to be doing something else, it takes us longer to actually do it than people already see that in us. Mm -hmm. They already there, you know, I'm sure as you transition, people were like, of course, that makes perfect sense, you right. know, <laughs> but we are all in our heads about it. And we have to like wring our hands for three years before <laughs> we can make a move. <laughs> so when, when I told my clients, like I was terrified, especially some of my bigger clients, and they were like, oh, that's amazing. We totally want to hire you as a business consultant. And I was like, cool. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so it actually wasn't, it was, hey, so it worked. was like a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. And it was sort of like 80% of my revenue was still legal and 20% was coaching. And then I just sort of inched it up and over probably uh, like probably a year and a half to two year period, I was winding down the legal stuff, not renewing my retainer clients and things like that. And like winding up the business coaching until gotcha. eventually I had no legal clients left. So it does take a while. It's like, I feel like the law is a really hard thing to leave. Like you don't just decide like I'm done and leave tomorrow. It's like the mob. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You got to transition out. <laughs> yeah. So now, now that we know where you are now, what are some of the things that you need to do when building a business focused on serving women, women of color that you wouldn't have to do 
if you're just building a general business, which probably means serving the general public, I guess, or um, a high yeah. percentage of white dudes. Well, I think honestly, it's important to have an ideal client and to focus that business on that ideal client, no matter what it is. And that's true for law practices too. We need to be specific about who we want to serve because otherwise, you know, people don't show up. You can be very specific in your marketing, which I'm sure you teach this a ton mm -hmm. when you are <laughs> talking to a specific type of client. And so when I thought about, you know, I did coaching probably for at least a year and a half. So it was like, you know, I was transitioning and I was pretty much done with the law practice. So I was able to kind of close the door on that. And then at that point, I looked back at, I had been doing like one-on-one -on -one coaching, VIP days. I did retreats overseas with people. And so it was like a million different offers, which was way too much. And I wanted to do one thing. And I was thinking about like, who do I love to serve the most? And where do I really see the need in the market? So it was like those two things. And what I found is that there's a lot of, you know, masterminds and business, you know, mm -hmm. communities and business teaching that is all really much run by white men and very few women at that level. Like even women as clients, there's very few. And then there's, you know, a lot of like for new entrepreneurs, there is like tons of stuff geared towards women as new entrepreneurs. But like once you hit six figures, once you get to 100K and you want to scale beyond that, it's pretty much like a, a wasteland, right? Like there's nothing specifically for women and the spaces that are for those entrepreneurs that are at a couple hundred thousand that want to scale to a million or multi-million it's all men. It's all men. Yeah. And it's mostly white men. And I've been in several rooms where I was the only, I was the only black woman, um, often only the only woman of color, sometimes one of two or three women in the entire thing. And so I was like, this sucks. <laughs> you know, do you have an insight into why, into why that is? Cause like we, we've noted that before Kelly street wrote a post for us about the lack of great business books written by women, um, although also listing some. Is there some reason you think that women and women of color are not writing business books and, and teaching and coaching and, you know, doing the business consulting that white dudes are? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it is, is that a lot of these women are being passed over and ignored. So that is certainly part of it where I have people email me all the time like, oh, I, I need a woman of color to put on my stage. And they're just like, T give me anybody. Right. And I'm like, first of Which all, feels shitty, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I know a thousand amazing women that you could put on your stage. Could you be more specific about what you're looking for? First of all, you know, and, but the reality is a lot of these businesses, these communities, they are really doing a great job of marketing to white men and they're mm -hmm. excluding women. And so women don't feel welcome. And so they don't make themselves known. They don't apply to speak. They don't make themselves part of their community. And of course, the same is going to be true for the publishing world when it comes to getting a book deal. It's like, there's so many more right. groups to jump through and you get questioned on, well, really how big is your platform? You know, and like all kinds of stupid questions that we have to answer as women and as people of color that like white men just, they're not going to get asked that question. They're just going to get be given the benefit of the doubt, you know? So in, in a non-cynical way, the marketing is part of it because portraying your company as a company that is friendly to the demographic you want to serve is a way of sort of extending your arms and saying, hey, this is your place. This is where you belong. Exactly right. And so it's as simple as I just saw recently a company that's like a mastermind event. Like it's like a vacation where you go with like a bunch of other women entrepreneurs. Right. And it's mm -hmm. supposed to be high level. Literally, it was hilarious to see the photos from it. 
every single woman in the photos was blonde. Like not only were they all <laughs> white women, but they were all blonde, you know? Which makes <laughs> was, a very clear statement about who is supposed to be going on this thing. Exactly right. But then they had a diversity statement on their website. And I was like, that's the most biggest crock of shit I've ever saw. Like mm -hmm. if you actually care, then go out and bring those people in. And that means like going out and being active about it. Even how you recruit on your team. Are people of color even seeing your job listings or are you only posting in places you know, where there's not a lot of people of color looking for jobs there. There's a lot of ways to be really specific. And I actually just did a huge blog post about how to make your online business, but it really is relevant to any business more diverse. And at every level, that means people on your team with your clients. And it's really about like, do you understand the issues that are specific to women? Do you understand the issues that are specific to people of color? And are you speaking to those issues? Because if you're not, then they don't feel welcome and they don't feel like you get them. And so why would they hand over their money? You know, my wife just illustrated this to me recently. I, we just went to Las Vegas for a conference and on the way back, we got bumped into first class class, which is great. And one of the things that they do is they hand out those hot towels to freshen up. Yes. And my wife said, well, that's something that you do for men. And I was like, what? And she's like, women don't want to wipe their makeup off their faces. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh shit, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, like I, I think that's an example of something where it just shows a cluelessness and not a, not, a, not maliciousness on my part, but that wouldn't have occurred to me because I'm not thinking about things through the lens. Yes. And I mean, if you think about especially the legal profession, but really the world is created for white men mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, like in terms of people that are in positions to control things by white men. Right. And and so like, we're all just trying to get in where we fit in and just make it work. And that's what we're accustomed to. Women are accustomed to like, oh, I have to just adjust, you yeah. know, and, and, and we experience it from college, law school, being a, an attorney, all of it. So when I, you know, get on my podcast or when I, you know, I'm talking in my marketing or doing a webinar and I'm speaking to these issues because I get them, I understand them because I've lived them then they're like, hell yeah, that's the person that I want to work with when it comes to building my business, somebody who gets where I'm at. And even, you know, things that are, you know, women really are thinking about, like, I want to have children. How can I make this business work with children and how can they coexist? Because what I'm teaching is how do you get to a million and not work 80 or 100 hours a week? Right. You'll make a million dollars and work. You know, I don't work on Fridays. I take Fridays off, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so part of your requirements is like, you know, I'm a woman, I might have kids, whatever. And how do I just assume that those are the starting points and not treat those like an exception? Exactly right. And and even women who don't want to have children, they still want freedom. They still want to enjoy their lives. They want to have life outside of their business or outside of law practice. And that's how it should be. Like it's insanity that you should work 80 to 100 hours a week. <laughs> I mean, and that's normal. I mean, it is, is, is completely bananas. And it's actually bad for business. Like every study that you could read from Harvard Business Review and a million other sources say that like people need time to recharge and you'll actually make your workforce more productive yeah. and more effective if they work less, not more. So, but you know, uh, apparently law firms and corporate America has not caught up with that. <laughs> so <laughs> you are a woman of color building a business around women of color. What would you say to somebody who is not um, a woman of color, but is trying to be more open and welcoming and, and actually inclusive, not in a cynical way, not in a pasting a diversity statement on way, but actually trying to do those things. And I understand that I'm asking you to like be the standard bearer, which isn't fair, but I thought as somebody who's doing it, you might have some tips. Yeah. 
And, you know, this is something that I get, like, I get DMs about this on a regular basis from, from, from my white male Mm -hmm. entrepreneur friends who are like, okay, no one of color or no women are showing up to my events and they start to feel embarrassed about it or a little upset about it. Like, what can I do? You know, which is it kind of, I guess I'm kind of what I'm asking is like, how do you start troubleshooting that? Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things that for, I, I feel like for, first of all, at a base level, there's two things that I would say. One is start looking at the network that you have in general, right? In your personal life, like who are your kids having play dates with? Who are your, you know, who are your close friends that you're hanging out with? Who are you meeting for coffee? Like if everybody's a white guy, well, guess what? You know, your business community (laughs) is going to reflect that. Exactly. So how can you go to a networking event that is going to be mostly people of color? How can you put yourself like go to restaurants that are, you know, in, you know, uh, multicultural neighborhoods, right? Like find ways to have play dates with the children of color in your kids classroom so that you can talk to the parents and connect with them. So you can find ways in your daily life to like really like reach out to your neighbors that are people of color. Like those are some of the things that you can do immediately is start to build, you know, a multicultural like friendships, right. Um, in your personal life, I think that's important. And then the other thing that I would do from a business sense is hire someone like whoever your next hire is going to be, make sure that person is either a person of color or a woman of color. That's one of the things that you can do to, you know, make sure that you have that perspective on your team. And there are stats that show that it actually makes you more innovative. Like if you want to be innovative, having diverse cultures, (laughs) absolutely, absolutely. You have just different cultures, different backgrounds, different perspectives to challenge, you know, to, to bring to some of the challenges that you're facing. So those are the two first things is like, I would start with your personal community and then also bring somebody onto your team who represents that community that you want to serve, because then they're going to be able to bring that, you know, perspective into your marketing and into everything that you're doing and just be that voice. We've all seen large companies with huge gaffes with, you know, just doing things that are offensive and not realizing it until that whole marketing campaign is out and into the world. And part of the reason is like, who is the person of color that is sitting at the table helping you make that decision? If you don't have a diverse perspective, and even if there are people of color, but they don't feel like they have a voice and don't, you know, can't really share openly and freely their perspectives. And that's how that stuff happens. Well, you mentioned so, doing your ideal client personas. Your ideal client persona is probably going to look different if you have a diverse team building it than if you don't. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely. Exactly. These things, like, for example, the the hot you know, washcloth in first class, like Mm -hmm. your, your wife was there to able to give you that perspective. You couldn't have thought of that by yourself. And you would have thought of that if you had another gentleman sitting next to you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I think we just, we, we need to, and really seek women out. And so that means like, for example, you have this platform and putting, you know, women of color, which you're doing right now, right? Like (laughs) on your platform, these are the kinds of things that I think people of color need to see to know that, oh, this is a company that I want to be associated with or that I might want to do business with. That, that you're putting, you know, authors, speakers, right? Like that you are, when you're hosting an event that you've got speakers that are of diverse backgrounds, like all of that stuff is really important and you should be looking to do it at every single layer. Who are your contractors? Who are your vendors? You know, everybody that you work with in your community, always looking to diversify, you know, what you have so that you have those perspectives because you genuinely care and not because you're like, oh, I need a token person to, 
make me not look bad, you know, cause that's bullshit. And we could see right through that. Everybody can. <laughs> and people, <laughs> people are pretty good at spotting bullshit in my experience. So. <laughs> exactly. And like, especially in the world of the internet, like our bullshit detector is on 11. <laughs> yeah, for sure. As we've been talking, I realized that I didn't ask you something already that I want to tee up for us to talk about, which is you started out being a lawyer and you wound up really doing it from a business oriented focus. And then eventually transitioned to really focusing on business, both in what you do and, and the substance that you're delivering and running your own. And I'm wondering, like, how would you talk to another lawyer who's who's solo or in charge of a small firm or in a leadership position at a small firm who's juggling with the tension between those two things, right? Because you can't simultaneously do the legal work and run the business. You've got to kind of switch hats now and then. And a lot of people are reluctant to do that, or it takes them a while to make that transition. I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about the tension between those two things. Yes. You know, I, I was at a business event last week and one of my friends who's a serial entrepreneur sold many businesses for many millions. One of the things he said to me is that, the businesses that win and that are the most successful are the ones that build leaders the fastest. Mm. And I thought that that was such great advice and such a great way to put it. And so I think that should be what you're competing for, not to prove that you can still practice law or that you're still touching all of the clients' cases. It's really not about that. You know, if you think about like, I'm trying to build a practice that makes a difference in the world that can serve, you know, more people, impact more people, and also make more money because when your firm is making more money, then you can treat your clients better. You can treat your employees better. There's a lot of impact that you can have when you have more resources. So these are all reasons why you should be looking to scale. And so if you're going to scale your practice, you know, you've got to get yourself out of the day to day as soon as humanly possible. And when you say scale, how, how much scale do you have in mind? Well, what, you know, my sweet spot, what I always talk about is going from a hundred K to a million. That is where I really like to work with clients. And, you know, and then obviously once you get to a million, then there, then sky's the limit, right? You can go beyond that. But that's usually something that seems so far fetched or so far off for a lot of people. And I'm like, it is so doable. It's not even funny. You just have to trust that you can and want to. And then once you do, you make the moves that make that happen. And part of that and is the key there is that like a hundred K is something you can do on your own selling your time. Right. A million is something you can do on your own with a little help, but you have to get out of the time mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that means, you know, for me, I knew like, honestly, basically what happened to me is I created my digital product, small business bodyguard. It was super successful. I had a baby at the same time mm -hmm. and moved across the country, like all literally in a two month period and almost had a nervous breakdown. And so that, that's what was the impetus for, I got to bring on an associate before I lose my freaking mind. Yeah. So that's what caused it for me, but don't wait till that point. You know, I knew I needed to hire someone like a year before that I was just scared. Um, but I think the good measure is like have three months of their salary in the bank, you know, and or like just in recurring revenue that, you know, will come in and then, you know, you can do it right. Like and then they will help you start to build that revenue beyond that. But having, you know, attorneys, I felt like when I wasn't divided, right, like if I'm running the business and I've got my CEO hat on and then I'm also doing legal work. I'm divided, right? But my associates were 100% focused on our clients and getting them results. And so that meant they could do the job better than I could because they weren't divided. They were 100% right. all in on that one thing. And once I realized that, it clicked to me like they are better to do that. And what I can do as a leader and as a CEO of this business is pour into them, train them, help them develop their talent, help them develop as leaders 
and they can, and then our clients are thrilled to be working with them instead of me, you know? And if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is that what it takes to get past that 100K barrier is becoming a leader and handing the legal work over to other people. Yes. And I think really leveraging your time and yeah. really in business, there's two ways to do it. You can capitalize on your intellectual property, which is what I did by creating a digital product. And you can hire other people to do some of this work. And so, and I think really you should do both. What about people who are like, but I really want to do the legal work? What do you say to people like that? Well, if that's the case, then you should probably create a leveraged offer, like a digital product or, you know, one of the things that we did was we had what we called an annual program where clients paid us a retainer to get advice whenever they needed it. And there were like a certain amount of services included. Mm -hmm. And so they were like paying us all year long to essentially be their lawyer. And this is something that usually was available only to like really big businesses or really high net worth individuals where they can keep a lawyer on retainer and basically reserve your time or some of your time right. for them should the, the need crop up. And now it's available to small businesses. And so that's what I did. And that was great. It meant that I had, you know, 30, 40, 50 clients paying me every single month. And I knew that money was going to come in. It like took away the sort of feast or famine and the fear around cash flow, which was great. And it also meant that I could hire people because I could rely on that income. And then we were available when they needed us. Right. But we, you know, if they didn't need us, they weren't calling us, which was great so that we could be free to serve other people. So we knew exactly how many, like exactly how many retainer clients could I handle with one associate. And then once I reached beyond that, okay, now I need to add a second associate for that second set of clients, you know? But either way, if you have an idea of what you want, like there, there is scale opportunities, small scale, and there's bigger scale and medium scale and everything in between. 100%. And yeah. still to this day, there are still very few lawyers who are practicing in a way that's really innovative, that really serves a consumer in a way that they want to be served. And so really all you have to do is think about your client and <laughs> what is, what is their situation? What is it that they want? And what are some creative ways that you can serve them? And, you know, like, for example, and I know you've seen this, and I think I've seen this mostly in the family law space where there's like a membership community and you pay 200 bucks a month to have access to, you know, templates and, you know, basically step-by-step -step walkthroughs of how to use those templates and like what to expect in, you know, this type of family law case or whatever. And you, like basically assisted DIY. So there's a lots of opportunities for you to capitalize on your intellectual property as an attorney and make more money um, so that you don't have to have a whole team if you don't want to. Is there a mindset shift that needs to happen that you find with your business clients that you work with now with the ones you worked before? Like I assume some of those early conversations or some of the early coaching you do is around like getting people's minds to change so that they can start thinking in terms of leverage, not in terms of just working their asses off. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think really what it is, is that when my clients come to me and I mean, this is all I talk about in my marketing, <laughs> on my podcast, everywhere. So they already know the drill when they, by the time they get on the phone with me, they already know what They're they ready. can expect. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I was an IP lawyer. And really, that's how it came about, because I saw all of my clients leveraging their time, leveraging their intellectual property. And I was like, um, this is a game I need to get in on. What the hell? You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> why am I only doing all the legal work, but also not being, you know, realizing that this is how we build wealth in America. That is the reality of it. Beyonce and Jay-Z, the reason why they're wealthy is because they're making money from their intellectual property. And that's why they're on yachts in Saint-Tropez, you know, 
-hmm. So we need to do the same thing and we need to recognize that we can play that same game. And it's not even a game. It's just smart, right? Like we, we are the keepers of so much knowledge, so much experience. If we've seen 50 million of these same types of cases and we know how they go and we know what's likely to happen, that's information that is extremely valuable. And you can put it in a book or you can put it in a course, right? Like there's a lot of ways that you could take that information and share it with people. And I feel like people are craving context more than they're just craving more content. So to have information that is really, first of all, vetted and also really specific to their situation. And that helps them to see where am I at right now with this problem that I'm trying to solve and what are my options for solving it? It doesn't necessarily only have to come from a consult with you. It can come from going through your program and learning how this works, right? Like as lawyers, we advise people all the time, like we're natural teachers. So I feel like that is a community that absolutely needs to be sharing some of this information and making bank from it, frankly, because there is such a huge market. This is something I found when I was a law clerk. There was such a huge market of like successful people who maybe were making 80,000 a year or even a hundred thousand a year who did not qualify for like legal services or legal aid, right? But they also couldn't afford, you know, $500 an hour or $350 an hour for an attorney. So they were in this really no man's land. And whenever you see people not being served, that is an opportunity for innovation, right? And that is a business opportunity for you. So that's what I would look at in your market right now. Who are the people who don't have enough to hire you, but maybe they do have so much that they don't qualify for legal aid? What are some options that you could create? to serve them. And just go through the thought exercise of like, exactly. Okay, like this isn't the way I normally think about clients, but here are some people that have some money. What could I offer them? How could I do it? If, you know, just as a thought exercise. And if you keep doing that, you'll start coming up with stuff. Yes. A ton of it, you know, and there's, I mean, sky's the limit. A lot of attorneys now are selling templates for people who just want to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think that that obviously that's a route, but really there's like so many different things that you could do. I wouldn't just look at what are other people doing. I would really look at your market first. I think that's where the answers lie for opportunities for leveraged offers. And you will serve a bunch of people. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I had thousands of people purchase my small business bodyguard program, which is still, it literally sold yesterday. It's still selling today. <laughs> cool. Um, <laughs> and I get emails all the time that are like, this was epic. It was so helpful. I couldn't afford an attorney. Now I know exactly what to do. I'm armed with the information, you know? And like what we do is like we update it once a year. It's really not that hard, you know? Yep. Um, and a lot of that law does not change much and that's it. And we're able to continue to make money from it and continue to serve and help others. So it's a win-win. Rachel Rogers, it's been so great catching up with you and hearing about what you're doing now and talking about coaching and alternative business models and building businesses around women of color. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 